the myth of separation and its accompanying technologies create crises that are inescapable and that converge into a birth crisis, which is the falling apart of that story of self and world that propels us into a state, an in-between state, the space between stories where we just don't know anymore who we are and what's real. Welcome back to Reconditioned with me, Lauren Backneen, your one-stop shop for all things holistic health and growth. And today I got to speak to someone I admire so much, someone I have learned so much from. They always say, don't meet your idols. And okay, I didn't meet him in person, but this person has taught me so much that it was such an honor, such a joy to speak to Charles Eisenstein. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. I I think I was smiling through the entire thing, just kind of in gratitude of having him there and being able to pick his brain. Like he's literally one of the most brilliant minds on the planet right now. And I just got an hour to pick his brain. So just amazing. We spoke about one of his books, The More Beautiful Worlds Our Hearts Know Is Possible. It's just a life changing book. It's almost a description of what's been going on the last two years, except it was very prophetic because he wrote it in 2012. It's literally a description of what we've been experiencing. So that's kind of amazing. And it's all to do with this, what he calls the story of separation versus the story of interbeing. So we spoke about that, what it takes to get back to a place of interbeing, moving out of this myth of separation, the story of separation, this narrative we've been fed about how we need to behave in this world, you know, me versus you, us versus them, as opposed to the understanding of the natural laws. We're all connected, everything's connected. So it was it was a conversation on how to move into that new way, new story of interbeing. We spoke about how that relates to parenting as well. He's got four sons and I've heard him speak extensively on this subject, but not from the lens, through the lens of parenting. So that was really expansive. We touched on many different things, but I'm going to just leave it here for today because I would just like you to get into the episode and really immerse yourselves in all Charles's wisdom and click on the link in the show notes as well to be led to the YouTube video of A Gathering of the Tribe, which is Charles's short film created by a part of his book where he talks about how almost like like he calls it a mythical way of seeing what's going on in the world right now through the lens of perhaps us as souls not as humans and it I know I've said this at the beginning of the episode about him generally but this changed it for me with all the frustrations of what was going on in the world and how I was going to bring my children up in a world that was so focused on things I didn't believe in this changed it for me this brought me back down to a place of truth and knowing and connectivity unicity no more separation. So I'd love you to listen to this episode and to watch that video. Thank you so much for being here. And I will let you get on with this episode with Charles Eisenstein. Charles Eisenstein is a prolific writer, speaker, and in my humble opinion, rare voice of reason and true intellect in these challenging and divisive times. He doesn't describe himself with any titles, but you might call Charles Eisenstein a modern philosopher and social anthropologist perhaps a more spiritual Simon Sinek, if you did feel the need for titles. His work ranges from the history of human civilizations, economics, spirituality, consciousness, ecology, and permaculture. His March 2020 essay, The Coronation, in reference to the then new coronavirus, 
and all associated measures went viral, garnering attention from all over the world and enabling us to perhaps rethink the mainstream narrative. One of his previous books, Sacred Economics, offers us a distinctly different perspective to how we've always viewed our economy. But one of the things that really grabbed my attention the most was Charles's The Story of a More Beautiful World, which I hope to get into in this episode. Sorry, the, the More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible is the full title. Now, Charles, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy. I'm happy to be here, Lauren. Uh, so, okay, so I've recently <laughs> revised my ideal dinner party guest to include you, so I'm hoping that might happen one day. Um, but in the meantime, I do have you here, which is a real moment for me because I've been wanting to just, I guess, have this one-on-one -on -one opportunity with you to really kind of pick your brain and connect with all your thoughts and philosophies for a while. Um, and there's so much I want to touch on, but before we do, I always start in the same place, which is what have you done so far today to support your wellness? <laughs> Well, I have a uh, cold plunge tub in my basement, and I went in there this morning um, for a good long time, and then uh, then I took a hot bath uh, to warm up again. Um, and when I do that, I feel I generally feel great all day every time I do that practice. Yeah, I, I've, I've started on the cold showers a year ago, but I'm, I still haven't got into the cold plunge. I'm not that brave yet. I'm getting there. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's not just a physical practice. Also, especially when you're just starting to do it, what comes up when you go into the cold water is intense fear. Yeah. This biological memory of drowning in cold water. Like it's it, like all kinds of panic comes up. So for me, uh, working through that was uh, maybe just as transformational as the actual physical effects. So it's funny because I've got a load of notes, but you've just said something. So I'm going to go totally off tangent because you said the biological fear that we're going to drown. You talk a lot about the story of separation and interconnectedness. Do you think we hold that biological fear as humans just because we are connected to other humans, even if we haven't experienced drowning or something like that ourselves? Yeah, I mean, depends on you know how sciencey we want to go with that question. Uh, there's you could look at evolutionary programs uh, that that uh, make a animal want to get out of cold water as quickly as possible, and what what. The emotion that we call fear is, if you look at it from that scientific point of view, it's basically uh, you know, a genetic program to avoid things that can harm you, that can end your life. So there's that fear level, but then there's also um, what you're talking about, like tuning into other human beings who have been in that situation, or you could even you know go to ancestral or past life kind of memories, whatever. Um, I, I don't know, like, it's not that important to me to explain exactly why the the panic comes up, the breathing gets, you know, really short, and then, and then one has the opportunity to master the fear, to not be just reactive to it, but purposely slow down the breath, relax the body, feel it come up, and instead be in the place of i know how to do this i'm okay i can do it that that's the transformation that that i experienced 
Yeah, I guess it's a great mindfulness practice in a way. Yeah, I mean, once you get used to it, though, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm seriously like not in any discomfort at this point. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm amazing. not like super, you know, ice man or anything. I've been doing it for a couple of years. Really. So I mentioned in the bio about you not really labeling yourself. So I would like to go here. How would you describe yourself and what you do and what your mission is with your work for those who aren't yet familiar with your work? Um, my, my, well, what I've been doing is to serve the transition in our, uh, basic myths and stories that we use to understand the world, that we use to understand who we are, that we use to say, here's what's possible and here's what isn't, here's what's real and here's what isn't, here's how to live life. Those, those kind of questions are embedded in a mythology, like really deep stories that we're barely conscious of. And what I perceived several decades ago is that these mythologies are falling apart. They're changing. So my job has been to serve that change and be part of the emergence of a new story of who we are, why we're here, what the world is, and so forth. Yeah. And so, so, so I'd like to talk about two things with you. Um, I'd love to go really into the story of separation and what it means um, in relation to everything. Um, because in keeping with the story of interconnectedness, obviously nothing is separate, but just for the sake of ease, I'd like to go two places with it into kind of COVID and the situation we found ourselves in just to understand how this has really um, driven a wedge, I guess, between us. Uh, between people in the story of separation um, and also I'd like to speak to you about parenting and how we parent our children in a way that promotes in them a sense of interconnectedness so let's go into the coronation um, and I know it might I mean you might be at the point where you might be sick of talking about this <laughs> but for my audience who might not have come across your work yet um, when I read the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, it almost feels like you were prophesizing this seismic shift in everything that's happened as a result of COVID. So what was your intention with that article? Yeah. When I wrote that article, I was being overcome with horror at what was happening in the world and the way that we as a civilization were responding to this disease. Basically, like everything that I'd been warning against was happening in real time. Mm. And it actually plunged me into quite a lot of despair. I was like, you know, have not my warnings uh, done any good whatsoever? Like, in fact, in 2016, I think it was, I wrote an article called Zika and the Mentality of Control, which was basically saying, um, the, well, they said a lot of things, but, but, but it was like, I, I, when it happened, I was already, um, alarmed by what was justified in order to combat a virus or to stop people from being sick. And I'm like this, you know, what, what happens if it's, um, something more serious than Zika? Uh, or more contagious. 
like what is going to happen to the world when we put safety above everything else. And that was one of the main themes of the article. Like, I'm not saying that safety is unimportant, but is it the most important thing in life to minimize all possible risk and to reorganize society in order to keep as many people from dying or getting sick as possible? Mm. It's, it's, I mean, certainly we don't want to be reckless, but, you know, suppose, Lauren, suppose you could increase your life expectancy by 1.7 years if you stay indoors the rest of your life and hook yourself up to the appropriate machines and inject the appropriate products. Well, and, and, and that will reduce your risk. Mm. Well, probably you would say, no, I would rather live a life that's fun and fulfilling. And then I say, well, you can't make that decision for other people. What if living a life that's fun and fulfilling puts them at risk? You're going to have to stay indoors the rest of your life. I mean, we did this, it was called a lockdown. We did this, it wasn't for the rest of your life, but it was for, in some places, for many months. And I said, the justification for doing this will not go away. It might increase and decrease with each new variant or each new virus, but there will always be a reason why we should stay isolated from each other, stay locked down, stay under control, stay medicated. There's always going to be at least a justification. And at some point, we have to decide what's important in life. Is it death avoidance? Is that the most important thing? Or is it to live life fully and well, even if that sometimes might mean a little bit more risk? So that, that was one of the main themes in the, in the essay. Um, and, you know, this was not um, the, this safety mania didn't start with COVID. I mean, it's been, it, it's, it's a whole mentality, the mentality um, of security, for example, that has guided U.S. foreign policy for so long. Keep us safe, keep us safe. Build a wall, uh, build, a, build a shield, build a nuclear fence, you know, like uh, surveil everybody, uh, be able to kill everybody, anybody on earth with the press of a drone button at any moment. Uh, maintain the perimeter, like all of these ways of thinking are, maybe they make us, they probably don't even make us safer. Like that's the big irony is that all of the COVID measures, probably in the long run, they are increasing chronic disease. Mm -hmm. They are increasing um, what they call uh, deaths of misery, deaths of despair and from addiction and suicide. Like in the long run, are they even making us healthier? or to, to cut us off from biological life and, 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 you know, to keep us in a sterile environment, like with all the, the, the gloves and the masks and the hand washing, like even, even its stated goal of keeping us safer, same thing with bombing other countries. You know, it's each, each time you do it, it's for security or safety, but in the long run, you don't even get that. Mm. And meanwhile, you end up living a lot of life. Yeah, because they can't, the problem that I have found with this and the difficulty and the frustration that I have been grappling with over the last two years has been, they can't quantify all those deaths of misery. They can't quantify, every person I meet has a story 
about how these lockdowns have affected them or their children in some profound way that, that can't be quantified. Whereas, right. you know, a, a vaccine and how many people it will help or how, how many, by how many percent it will prevent something can in a way be quantified, whether or not you believe those stats to be true or false. We can't quantify those things, the other things. So right. I guess that leaves us at the mercy of these other decisions because this is what's going to keep you safe. Um, how do you deal with that frustration? Because for me, it's yeah. been a, a real kind of um, education and, and, and pushing me further into my inward journey in order mm -hmm. to manage that. Yeah, that's one of the deeper programs. Uh, the whole idea that the best way to navigate life personally or collectively is by the numbers, mm -hmm. by the things that you can measure. That's mm -hmm. called scientific. But as you say, a lot of what life is really about can't be measured. So if you make decisions only by what can be measured, you're going to leave out the qualitative mm -hmm. parts of life and you're going to sacrifice those things, all the things that, that, that you can't measure, but that you actually really need as a human being, which is why even the elites, or especially the elites, flouted their own regulations because some part of us cares about other things more than safety. Mm. Actually, we're not here to go to our graves as safe as possible. Right. So that, that whole calculation of cost and benefit, that's not how to live, you know? I mean, you can make some decisions that way, say financial decisions, but ultimately there's more to life than what you can measure. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. Yeah. And so I can't remember if this is from one of your books or an essay, but I wrote this down. It's a quote of yours. If we flee to an illusion of normal from which we'd orig originally crave liberation, this all will have been in vain. <laughs> just, uh, just that really speaks to me. So yeah. do you have your own views about why this has all happened, like on a deeper, more existential level? Well, yeah. Um, one, one effect or one function that the pandemic has had is to make a direction that we have been moving in more visible. Because not just safety, but but the migration of life online, for example, the atrophy of social ties, um, the, the um, withdrawal from sociality from our neighbors, uh, the, the shopping online, learning online, working online, having meetings online, having conferences online, everything, entertainment you know, through your screen, uh, rather than getting together with people and singing. like This was in decline before COVID. COVID is kind of fast forwarding us to the future that we were headed to already. And it's asking, do you want this? Because you can have it. We can do it. We can, we can change society so that everybody is living in their box all the time. And it becomes taboo ever to expose your naked face to somebody, you know, in public and where, yeah, we're all insulated. Like we could have that. Do we want that? Well, let me help you decide by showing you what it's like. 
So now we are out of, in most places, out of lockdowns and things. But it's not like it couldn't happen again because all of the basic assumptions that motivated it are still in place and all of the technologies that facilitated it are still in place even more developed than before. You know, the surveillance and, and all that all that stuff. So it's not like it'll never come back. We're through it right now. And we don't have to make the choice to say, no, we don't want that. We have been shown a future. And if we don't want that future, we have to claim something else. We have to claim life, in-person life, social life, the, the messy life of relations and interactions with other real human beings and hold that sacred so that we will stand up for it next time it is under, under threat. And do you think enough people will, because here's another, you know, another kind of frustration, I suppose, was coming from the way I live life, which is very much about natural health, natural immunity. You know, I've never worn a mask. I've never used a hand sanitizer. I don't vaccinate my children, et cetera, et cetera. I believe in mud. <laughs> and, you know, it's been very um, challenging to watch the mainstream narrative go over towards sterile is the way. Do you believe there is an opportunity for the people who are listening to that narrative? Because, you know, let's be honest, that is the masses, the mainstream, most people are listening to that. Do you believe there is a chance for those people to kind of come over to the other way of thinking and make that choice? Because you're saying, you know, this is what it could look like, but we have a choice. Because often it can look like people are looking at it going, this is right because I need to be safe. And 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 in no, no disrespect to them, because, you know, as we all come to this, we're all on our own journeys and we all come to this at which, whatever time for whatever reason, but they're in that narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The narrative feeds on a, a deeper fuel, which is unfocused fear, general anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. That discomfort seeks an outlet. The, the discomfort of that fear seeks an outlet. So when a virus comes along, then the latent fear is channeled onto that. And not only, so that provides some relief in a way. Uh, just like when, when you go watch a, a horror movie, some people like to watch horror movies because it, it, it gives expression to a fear that was already there. And then it provides a positive resolution. So you walk out of that movie, and the monster has been destroyed and all is well. Right. So uh, COVID was in a similar fashion. It gave people something to be afraid of and something they could do. They could do something about it. Mm. So here's, it's like basically saying, here's what you've been afraid of. It's a virus and you can be safe. Wash your hands, stay indoors, stand six feet apart, you know, get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. It, it makes the fear into something manageable. So as long as that underlying fear is there, the people will be susceptible to one manipulation after another, after another. So on a deeper level, the work that we have to do, it's not about convincing people that you know, body ecology is important and you need to encounter 
uh, microorganisms and other DNA, you know, to maintain the the healthy flux of life through your system. Like we could articulate ideas like that, but it's not the the, the COVID hysteria is not rational. And if we try to meet it rationally, we're only going to get so far. There's a, the, the attraction to the mud, as you were saying, that comes from a release of fear and a desire to be more in the world, more in relation. So the, that's, for me, the question is, how do we <clears throat> reduce the general level of fear and anxiety? In the world, and that gets down to what you know you might call spirituality. How do we make people feel loved and accepted, and that they belong, and that they are at home here, and that it's okay that they are among friends who who love them, uh, that the universe is generous? How do we give people that experience? Because when they have that experience, they will no longer be susceptible to various kinds of fear mongering and um, you know, war, war fear, fever, and, and all that we see happening today. And they won't be susceptible to getting set against each other. Because that's another thing you can do is you, you can say, oh, the problem, the danger is in this other group of people. Yeah. Just like a virus. So it's the same thing. You turn the, the fear into hate, into, into war. So that's that's the base level that that whatever else we do, we need to work on that level as well. Yeah, well, because that further fuels the story of separation. Mm -hmm. Which I'd love you to go into that into because reading um, the more beautiful world, our hearts know is possible has been a real education for me. And also it just it, it really was a very interesting knowing that you wrote it before the pandemic. Oh, yeah, um, I wrote that in like 2012. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it just it, it felt so prophetic and yeah. so just indicative of the time we're living in right now. Um, but, you know, the thing that one of the things that has has helped me in this time, and this is kind of a practice I'm learning through my shaman that I work with. If you're fearful of something, because you were just speaking about fear, go into that fear instead of kind of, you know, attack it or or stop it or it's sit with that fear, sit with the mm -hmm. sadness, sit with whatever difficult emotions are, and challenges are coming up and just let it wash over you. Try to understand it. Um, yeah. So that, that's been a big part of this journey for me. Um, but yeah, you know, that book really kind of took me more into that, into understanding interconnectedness, the story of separation. I'd love you to go into what you mean by the story of separation a little bit. Okay. Yeah, so basically the book describes the process of transition in a world-defining, self-defining story. And the general template is in our in our in this civilization. Uh, it's a transition from the story of separation to a story of interbeing, you could call it interconnection, interdependency, ecology. Um, so, so the story of separation, at its bottom, it says who you are is a separate self in a world of other. 
who you are is like the soul encased in flesh or a, 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 a bubble of psychology uh, walking around inside of a flesh robot uh, or a biomechanical organism, organism programmed by your genes to maximize reproductive self-interest. Like there's many, many different versions of it, but at bottom it's I'm separate from you, I'm separate from the world. Maybe I'm conditionally connected to you. Like maybe I breathe air that's made by the rainforest, but that's conditional. If we could replace the rainforests with oxygen making machines, we wouldn't need the rainforests. If we could replace the soil with hydroponics factories, we wouldn't need the soil. If we could replace nature with VR uh, immersive experiences, then we wouldn't need nature for anything. So it's this idea that we're fundamentally separate and that what happens in the world, we can insulate ourselves from that, from whatever we do to the world that need not affect ourselves. And it also says that the world is kind of in opposition to us because there's all these forces of nature that have no purpose and no intelligence. They're just random. So we're never safe unless we can control those forces and insulate ourselves from them and even turn them to our will. And then if we do that, we can make the world better and better. So as part of the story of separation, progress comes through control. And so you can see how this plays out in things like the obsession with safety or the control through censorship and surveillance. Like this is considered to be a good thing. It's not necessarily that the, that the people who are promoting these technologies are evil. They're like, this will enable us to more rationally administer society. This is good. What's, what's your problem? Let's go there for a minute. I want to take a little detour, if yeah. that's okay. Because this is a massive question that is always in my mind. I'm always thinking about, is Bill Gates actually evil? Surely a human being doesn't want half of the population of the world to die. Surely another human being doesn't want to inflict pain. Surely Donald Trump didn't put those people in those detention centers and pull them away from their babies. Then there must be some nuance here. And I, in my, in my soul as a being, feel that there is something more to it and that people aren't just inherently evil and that's it. I'd yeah, like you to I mean, go there a little bit. <laughs> I, mean, they're, 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 I think that there are some people who are you know, highly psychopathic and ruthless and so forth, but that's not a good explanation for why the world is the way it is because perfectly normal, decent people can do horrible things too. Mm. Partly when they compartmentalize uh, or they hold the victims of their actions in a story that, that reduces them to something less than fully human or fully um, conscious, uh, or when they are intoxicated with an ideology that justifies the things that they do. So I could easily see Bill Gates believing fully that he is a force for good in the world, maybe even that he is saving the world. Mm -hmm. Adolf Hitler believed he was saving the world too. Mm -hmm. You know, the biggest scientifically recognized threat to humanity, so they thought at the time, was genetic degradation. So, so 
when we when we ascribe their actions to well they're just evil then we do not see the ideologies in which they are the good guys and if we're going to be effective in changing their behavior or resisting them uh, or offering an alternative we have to understand where they're coming from so this so i don't really i don't know bill gates you know but i can imagine that he's thinking, yeah, this is science. You know, we're going to bring science to the unenlightened parts of the world, the miracles of modern medicine. And okay, maybe there's some glitches in it. You know, we better not let people know about those uh, because that'll turn them against this wonderful program. So we got to hide. If there is vaccine damage, we have to hide it. Um, and yeah, maybe some people will be sterilized or whatever, but you know, like, I mean, we're really harming the environment anyway, and it'll be better in the long run. Uh, we better not let people know about that either, because then they'll get really mad and because and, and they'll misunderstand us. Because really, what we want to do is good. Like I can under, I could, I could uh, speculate about what his state of mind is. Underneath all that is what I was talking about: this ideology of control and this myth of progress that says that human progress comes through being able to better and better control the world outside of ourselves. If you take that historical arc uh, for granted, that historical narrative, then you will be predisposed to celebrate every new application of control-based technology, whether it's genetic or social control. So that that's part of the ideology of separation. And in the book, one, one thing that I, actually this is uh, my first book, The Ascent of Humanity, really fleshes this out. But basically it's that the, the myth of separation and its accompanying technologies create crises that are inescapable and that converge into a birth crisis, which is the falling apart of that story of self and world that propels us into a state, an in-between state, state, the space between stories where we just don't know anymore who we are and what's real. And that is why the book seemed so prescient when that began happening under COVID. And it's continuing to happen now as our systems unravel even more. Like the pandemic as a disease might be over, but its effect is just beginning. And it is to unravel our stories and to create that emptiness, that unknowing, that bewilderment that hosts the emergence of new stories. And in the book, I say the, the um, structure of the new stories is interbeing, that, that who I am isn't a separate self, that, that I am intimately connected to all other selves, not just dependent, but inter-existent with them. That there's something of you in me, something of the rainforest in me. Anything that happens to you in some way is also happening to me. Mm. That I can't shield myself from anything happening in the world. And it doesn't mean that it's a one-to-one -one direct you know, if, if the rainforest dies, I die. It's if the rainforest dies, 
something in me dies. Mm -hmm. That's that's the story of interbeing. Such an expansive answer. Um, like it takes so many places. I'm so excited to be working with Block Blue Light again. You guys know I talk about their blue light blocking glasses a lot, but I actually have new reason to talk to you about them now. So a lot of you know we're renovating our new house at the moment and we have decided to go ahead and kit out our entire house with anti-blue light bulbs because of how damaging modern lighting is to our health and our sleep. We wanted to change everything modern houses usually have that we never question, but that are actually really detrimental to health. So in this case, things like not having dimmers because they release such high EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, or not having LED or fluorescent lighting anywhere, which seems crazy to everyone because that's just what we're used to. We wanted lights without damaging blue light, but in rooms like the kitchen, I really wanted to make sure I still had enough light, especially living in the UK where it gets dark at 4 p.m. in the winter. And this was a little bit of a concern of mine because I still really want the house to be fully functional for modern living. But the Block Blue Light team created the world's first biologically friendly day to night full spectrum light bulb. And that's a lighting technology that really closely replicates the same visual color spectrum as visible natural light from the sun. And this sort of exposure to full spectrum light will increase energy throughout the day and uplifts our mood and increases overall well-being. And of course, these lights are super low EMF. And low EMF is something I've become hyper aware of in recent years and something we're really trying to focus on with this house. So for rooms where we don't need lights that are as bright, we've opted for their amber light and taken their advice on things like having floor and table lamps. So after dusk, we'd only have lights at eye height because our ancestors would have only had firelight after dusk, right? And no overhead lighting. And we know that when we mimic our natural states as much as possible, our health thrives. And we wanted to make sure we did this with our new home in every way we could. So they also created the first ever blue light free reading lamp that attaches to your book and it has three brightness settings, but no blue light whatsoever. So it won't damage my sleep in any way, which is life changing for me because I read in bed every night. Now, this is the third season reconditioned have teamed up with Block Blue Light because we all know that healthy eating is essential and all of that great stuff, but not enough people know of how important reducing our exposure to EMFs is. And I really want to continue sharing this message. Sleep optimization is key to health and these products really maximize that. So you can go ahead and use the code LV20 at checkout on blockbluelight.co.uk for 20% discount across the entire range. Thank you so much to Block Blue Light. I spoke about kind of health technology in there a little bit. And I know that you kind of, um, or correct me if I'm wrong, but had a little bit of a, a challenge or it was maybe a little bit um, uh, of a challenge for you kind of coming out the closet with your views on all all the stuff with COVID. Am I right there? There was like a little bit of a, it was. Well, you know, I got um, denounced and deplatformed and censored and, you know, yeah. um, people who had been close friends and allies repudiated me and things like that, um, which was not fun. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also, you know, and and all of these Again, the inner and the outer are connected. Like all of these external vo voices of condemnation mirrored internal voices of self-criticism. 
So I, I went through long periods where I'm like, hold on, maybe everything I'm saying is wrong. How can I be sure? And so I went back to like the, the very foundation of my beliefs, which is in direct experience. And like, cause like I was thinking, am I crazy? You know, and if I go out and seek other people who agree with me, are we all just being crazy together? How is that any different from what the mainstream is doing? How do I know? Where's the humility here? So I began seeking out people um, who I perceived to have humility and open-mindedness. And I did my best to embody that myself and to like to ask, what do I know for sure? And that took me to the direct experiences <clears throat> that, that were part of the formation of my radical views to begin with that are ongoing, you know, and that, that are hard to explain away in conventional terms. And it sounds like you've had experiences also that don't fit medical reality as it has been narrated to us. No, absolutely. That, that's why um, I kind of wanted to touch on, on health technology, because for me, it was all the things that would you know, make me better were the things that made me worse, all the things that were denounced by modern medicine as being voodoo. They told my mum when my mum was, you know, it, we, it was in the 80s and my mum was using homeopathy and they told her she was being a bad mother. And my mum had no education on anything, let alone, you know, holistic therapies, but it was, it was her gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And somehow, <clears throat> regardless of all those authoritative voices around her, she held firm onto that gut feeling. And I think, I, I truly believe there is so much in that, that niggle, you know, the higher self comes through. And that was what saved me, that understanding that there is something that we're not seeing or that we're not being told. These ancient therapies, these ancient wisdoms were there for a reason. And for me, I've always known and didn't wasn't able to articulate it in the way that you articulate it but that these modern technologies are a form of separation from the self so for me the only times i ever took modern medicine for the chronic illness was a disaster for me and despite my efforts and you know clearly going from being wheelchair bound fully head to toe disabled to being in complete wellness the doctors still have, they tell me it was a coincidence. I've only got one, one doctor who really sees it and, and is, is very kind of, you know, honors my journey. Um, but they all just say it was a coincidence. You grew out of it, you, you know? And it's, and right. it's, like you say, it's hard to kill off that ideology. Like that's where they need to be. That's fine. Right. But and I then just like, show me the evidence, show me the show data me the that work, you know? And then like you get into a conversation about, well, the way that the data is produced has biases built into it, right? Funding biases, paradigm protection, like yes, <laughs> yeah, and and it's like you end up talking past each other because yeah. the the assumptions that they would have to look at to even have the conversation with you are so deep mm. that it's like a major spiritual undertaking to examine them, and usually that doesn't happen without some big life event. Yeah. And I find that the doctors, the older doctors with age come to this realization towards their retirement. Mm. 
And this has been my experience. Many of my doctors have been doctors that I've been with for many years. I don't see any of them very regularly now, but you know, over the years, I've seen them soften into this understanding because life experience has pushed them into that unknowingly, unwittingly, they've arrived at this place of, oh, okay, I see what she was talking about. You know, because like you say, all those, the stats, the data, there's so much bias there. Show me your evidence. Okay, well, I'll put my leg over my head. There's your evidence. I couldn't do that a few years ago. (laughs) And I certainly couldn't do that with the technologies that you offered me. So again, it's coming, it comes down to all these things that we need to quantify instead of looking at human beings standing in front of you going, this really worked. Maybe let's look at why. Yeah. It makes sense that, that, oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go. I I was, it makes sense that, that they would soften with age because these belief systems are part of an identity. Right. And when you get older, and death approaches, you realize you, you stop holding on so tightly. At least some people, some mm-hmm. people hold on more tightly, but some people hold on less tightly to who they thought they were. Yeah. And part of that can be uh, a softening of belief systems that had been rigid. Yeah. Yeah. I find that even with myself. I mean, I'm only 38. I'm not, like, you know, on my deathbed, but I just, I thought I knew everything when I was younger. And when I started in this journey, I was really kind of aggressive with my views. This is right. And this is, you know, and and that was, you know, during the advent of social media. So all my views would be, you know, and that was a big regret of mine because I had no, no social etiquette around that. But the older I get, the more I realize how much I don't know. And I think coming from that place is integral to our growth. Mm -hmm. Um, I think with the doctors, it was, always a case of the more life experience they have the more they see that not everything that they thought was connected by statistics actually adds up with those statistics and I just think that's a life experience Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. yeah so I really want to talk to you about parenting because I know you have four sons right Mm -hmm. um and I've heard you talk about your family um but not in great depth in terms of um, how you raise them within this kind of story of um, interconnectedness, interbeing. Um, I, I've been speaking to your ex-wife, Patsy, while we've been arranging this. And yeah. that in itself is beautiful, kind of like this love you have for each other and this this union. And it's just so beautiful that you are, you know, in, in that sort of contact with her and she helps you with your business and wonderful. Um, so I want to know kind of how you approach parenting with these views and these beliefs you have like down to kind of the tangible do you homeschool your kids like how do you manage all of this because it it's a real task yeah so part of the transition to a story of interbeing is to end the war on nature Mm. and the war on the self which is part of that mentality of control So that mentality of control, conventionally speaking in society, is applied to children too, in every aspect of their upbringing. So for example, in school, you have to motivate, punish, and bribe them um, into learning. Uh, So the the, uh, 
transition away from that might be to trust their natural desire to learn and to provide the resources for them to do that. The resources, you know, it can be materials, but it can also be your own enthusiasm and passion for something or somebody in the community's enthusiasm and passion for something. Um, even such things like that are, that are so reflexive as teaching children to be polite, I've more and more come to question those mm. and to not do them. Um, like when, when you tell your children to say thank you or I'm sorry, and use and wield the threat of parental disapproval and the reward of parental approval to make them say it. That's a kind of a that's force. Mm. That's not trust. And the result will be insincerity. They will learn to say thank you when they don't feel thankful, and to say they're sorry when they are not sorry. Mm. And and they'll say it with resentment. Like you, you've heard it probably a thousand times. Uh, say you're sorry, mm. sorry, right? Is that really what we want to teach? And what's the alternative? The alternative would be to help them or to, to be there in a way that they can find in themselves their, their gratitude or their sorrow for having caused harm. And when they see me do that and say thank you from an authentic place or I'm sorry from an authentic place and they learn what to do with those feelings. So I've done this um, really with all four of my kids. I wasn't so conscious of it in the early days. You know, with my eldest, I was just like, no, I'm not going to make him say I'm sorry. I'm not going to make him say please and thank you, you know. Um, and with, with greater and greater consciousness, as, you know, as I became more experienced, and the weird thing is, like, my kids are all very polite, but I've never once told them to say thank you or, or mm. you know, please or I'm sorry. Well, kids do as we do, not as we say, right? So I guess they're just observing how you are in the world. Yeah, but it's also a kind of a trust, mm. a kind of a trust. So, yeah, that, that like, so rather than, that's like an example. Um, and. So I'm not going to like give more parenting tips, but I want to use that example to point to the mentality of, of trust, of listening, you know, of participation in a natural process, because that is the new relationship to nature, the new and ancient relationship to nature that can succeed the domination, exploitation, extraction relationship that industrial civilization has had. Yeah. And so like on a tangible level, do you, how old are your kids? Well, the eldest is 25 oh. and the youngest is nine. I had quite a spread. And so do you homeschool them? Like how do you, mm -hmm. yeah, you do. Well, um, we've done all kinds of things. Um, various, yeah, from homeschooling to Montessori, um, haven't really had much of an opportunity to do Waldorf. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, 
charter schools, public public schools even. Yeah. Depends on, on the child and what they want and what they're ready for. You know, at some point, maybe they want the challenge of going out into the big bad world yeah. and learning who they are in that. Uh, right yeah. now, our, the my older ones are all pretty much grown. Um, the youngest, though, we have like a little homeschooling pod. So we it's kind of, it's not really homeschooling in a way. It's like, um, it's a, a little tiny itsy bitsy school that we have cooperatively formed. And that kind of, that came a lot in response to COVID. Like we, he was going to go to a Montessori school that seemed really good, but we're like, no, we're not going to send him to a masked environment where he's not seeing human faces all day mm-hmm. and where that's getting normalized. No, we just didn't want to do that. So that's, we found other like-minded parents and we made a little co-op. Uh, so like who, so the parents teach the parent, I mean, I say teach quite unquote, the parents facilitate. No, actually, um, we found a uh, Montessori teacher who um, also didn't want to be in a masked environment. Yeah. So we have a we have like a little school. Because we tried to do this here, and we've come up against so many challenges. So first of all, our local Waldorf school closed down um, a few years back, and then we tried to do something like this. But here, they're called um, like a school. The state school is called a free school, mm-hmm. and if you have four or more children learning together it has to officially be set, be set up as a free school unless all like parents are present and it's not headed by a teacher. Yeah. Or unless to, you don't tell them about it. Unless you don't tell them about it. We've got that as well. Better cut this out on the done. podcast. <laughs> um, right. yeah. 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 I mean, at some point, like the, the, we're, we're stepping out of the conventional society. You've stepped out of it in terms of healthcare. Uh, we've stepped out. I So have I, um, I haven't been to a doctor since I probably shouldn't even say this like I'm bragging about it because like as soon as I say it, I'll probably get sick. So I'm not going to say it. What I just said, I didn't say. Um, but let's just say that I'm I'm really not in that in that system. I'm in a different, it's almost like a different reality. Yeah. Where I, I and that's why like I think I you can say it because your thoughts yeah. hold the vibration of I am a healthy person and I know the ways in which to keep my listen, if something happens like an emergency. I had an ectopic pregnancy in December and it ruptured. And I happened to be in the hospital because they were scanning me because they knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. I happened to be in the hospital when it ruptured. My pelvis filled with blood. I had internal bleeding. Without right. modern medicine, I wouldn't have survived. Right. But once in 10, 15 years, I might need that. Right. Not every day, not every month. Is, is great for, for emergencies. Emergencies, yeah. Yeah, like my rule of thumb is if it's going to kill me in 24 hours, I'll do it. I'll yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so that's, you know, you and I have stepped into a parallel universe, um, mostly. Um, and, and with education also, um, this parallel reality, um, you can't necessarily fit it into the legal framework of the old reality. Yeah. You know, and, and so Different people, like we're we're exploring many, many different aspects of a parallel society. Healthcare, education, food, um, uh, money, even, you know, people who are exploring cryptocurrencies and stuff like that, which is I'm, I don't really want to get into it, but it's just like this, these hints that um a a completely different society built on a new mythology of interbeing is possible and we're getting little little bits and pieces of it 
um, even like entertainment, like one thing that happened in COVID, like we couldn't go to concerts anymore for a while. There weren't any, and then like you had to be vaccinated. So, or, or like festivals, events, like we couldn't do them anymore. The venues wouldn't let us. So we started to do them outside of those venues. Yeah have our own events it's like a whole separate society almost yeah and then you call in yeah. that society as well like my i am really fortunate that i have kind of i like to say i manifested it because over the years it was like me calling in my tribe and it really happened and we so i kind of exist within my own echo chamber because my parents are also like-minded and whatever but um you know, we've been speaking about kind of creating a community garden and in, in so many ways, stepping outside of the system and how can we kind of bring, you know, this into a community way of thinking, which was only brought about because of being pushed so far out of our comfort zone. So like sometimes that is what's needed. We have to be pushed yeah. so far out of our comfort zone. It's like, no, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to live in that system. And at the moment, I've kind of just lived on the periphery of the system, but maybe now I really need to step out of it if I'm going to continue existing on this planet. Right. So something you did say, I've just got a little quote here um, about, um, about um, education. I just want to read this quote. When we become aware of how the school system is a conditioning agent to instill in children obedience to authority, uh, passivity, and tolerance to tedium for the sake of external rewards, we begin to question school performance as a metric of well-being. Maybe a healthy child is one who resists schooling and standardization, not one who excels at it. This literally spoke to my soul because this is my son. Right? He just doesn't want to be told what to do within not just a school setting, even like clubs. He just he just wants to do his own thing. And the, the 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 mainstream narrative would say, well, find a club that he likes, continue, make sure he does this and stick at it. And, you know, but maybe I just need to follow his lead. Yeah. And part of that might be for him to have the experience of, of, because, you know, at some point, you know, in human social life, you learn to not always insist on having your own way and to take care of others' needs uh, and to develop agreements, you know. And <clears throat> that capacity is actually stifled by a lot of the social organization of childhood where any dispute, any conflict is uh, adjudicated immediately by an authority figure, yeah. whether it's the little league coach or the classroom teacher or whatever, the, the club um, you know, supervisor, whatever it is. So, so children never have like the experience that I had when I was a kid, where we'd spend half the time arguing about the rules when we played a game of stickball. And we'd work it out, you know, and we learned how to work it out. So, you know, so, so I, I just want to point to this false dichotomy between authoritarian imposition of rules and structures and everyone just does their own thing like that's not actually mature but how old is your son he's six six okay so fine you know but at some point you know as he becomes older he's going to learn that if he always insists on his own way if he's given the chance right, to learn yeah. this yeah he will learn that just insisting on his own way isn't going to be that much fun no one's going to want to play with him uh and there's certain things that you can do in a group that are way more fun than just 
so so this is a, a natural learning course that mm. that you know hopefully you'll be able to find a way to for him to to experience yeah uh, so it's neither just do my own thing nor uh you know the teacher telling everybody what to do yeah you know they start school here at four in the uk not not at six or seven it's yeah terrific I just, I know you said you didn't want to go into it, but I very quickly just want to touch on cryptocurrencies. Obviously, you're an economist. This is your background. You, no, I'm not an economist. It's not my background, but I did no? write a book about it. No, I just was, you know, somewhat self educated about it. Well, in that respect, yeah. <laughs> you understand economy and sacred economics is very, um, very expansive in so many ways. So I just, do you not think that cryptocurrency, because again, there's so many differing views, is cryptocurrency just another way for us to remain in the system? Just feels like it, we're creating another system, or is it a good thing? Um, I think it's an evolutionary movement um, that maybe very imperfectly uh, applies some important ideals, um, such as decentralization, such as bottom-up uh, um, decision-making structures. Um, now, many of these are not actually well executed, you know, by various cryptocurrencies, um, but the idea is there. And, you know, who knows what how they're going to evolve in, in years and decades ahead. Um, I mean, right now, though, like, you know, they've mostly or very much been a speculative instrument and have really tapped into greed. But that does not invalidate the um, potential and the, the ideals that are also, you know, in cryptocurrencies. Mm. Okay. Thank you. I guess it's a way more, <laughs> a way bigger conversation, but thank yeah. you for touching on that. Um, so just before we kind of wrap up, something that deeply affected me and profoundly um, helped me during, um, I can't remember when I saw it, um, maybe a year ago, the animation that was made from your writing, um, and I'll put the link in YouTube. I can't even remember the title to it. I should the have Gathering of the Tribe, was it? Gathering of the Tribe, yeah. that's it. Mm -hmm. I've sent that to every client, every friend, everyone who I know was feeling the heaviness of the time that we're living in and this, how do we get through this and this fear? On one side, there are the people who are living in fear of the virus and all those things. The people that I um, tend to be around more fearful of the way the world was going, like, are we just going to be shut out of everything if we're not vaccinated? Are we... What world are we bringing our children up into? Um, and that video, I mean, it's like nine minutes long, but it did something to me because it spoke so deeply to purpose. So I, I'd love you to just, you know, speak about that or, you know, speak to that in a way, like, what do you think our purpose is here in this human experience? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm well familiar with that despair. You know, are we going to have to get vaccinated to do anything? You know, is it going to be a techno totalitarian nightmare that's unstoppable already? And 
I mean, I can go there, but there's part go of that, please. <laughs> I can lay out an argument why it's unstoppable and that's what's happening. But there's part of me that knows better. Yeah. There's part of me that understands that that to cast myself or ourselves as powerless victims of this process is not actually spiritual truth. That it that that despair gives a level of power to these controlling forces that they don't actually have, except with our own abdication of our own power. And that in fact, in this kind of reverse logic, that if it were hopeless, we wouldn't be here. And that we have, and, and this question of what is the future gonna be, it's not something that we ask properly, it's something that we tell. Here is what the future is gonna be. We have agency over it because our power to choose that future is much greater than despair would have it. So the, the short film you, you're talking about is a, um, it's kind of a, a mythological evocation of that truth that, that gives expression to the knowledge that, yeah, we're here to do something about it. That's why we care so much. That care is, is the, the call of our soul to direct our energy to do something about it. Once we recognize that, then the question is, well, what is mine to do? And that is also a whole journey through another minefield because the doings that are offered to us by the old programming sometimes actually contribute to the, to the fear levels and or contribute to this us versus them mentality, good guys, guys versus bad guys mentality. That's actually part of the problem. And um, yeah, I mean, I could say a lot more about that, but, but maybe I'll leave it, leave it at that. Yeah, and I would just highly recommend everyone to watch that short film and I'll, I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. It, it, it genuinely changed things. And I don't know if you're even aware how much it changed things for people in terms of th this fear was real for me. And I was trying to remain in, in a state that wasn't coming from a place of toxic positivity, but that was from a deep inner knowing. And there was a deep inner knowing in me that things go in a certain way for a certain reason. I've learned that in, in this life. I know that I've learned that in other lives, but this, this really spoke to that. It was a way of me in nine minutes being shown, you know that this is true. You know that we have chosen to be here right now. Of all the times we could have incarnated here, we've chosen right now at this moment in time to be here. We must have a really deep purpose for that. Um, so yeah, I'd highly recommend everyone listening to go and watch that um, because it just changed everything for me. So thank you for that. Okay, so before we wrap, we wrap up, um, rapid fire round all about you. Um, so the first, I always ask the same first one, which is uh, fill in the blank. Wellness is? Wellness is wholeness. Mm. Love that. Um, what is something that people usually get wrong about you? That I've got all my shit together. <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, 
one thing, what one thing do you believe we should all be doing to get healthier? Trusting the wisdom within our own bodies. I could see you trying to really get that out in the right way. And that's a perfect way of describing it. Thank you. Um, so as someone who does understand economy, but with your mindset and kind of connectivity, I'd love to know how you define wealth. An abundance and diversity of relationships. Mm. Amazing. Okay, and the last one, music. So music plays a, a huge part in my life. I literally have a soundtrack for kind of every chapter of my life. And, and I now understand that that's totally related to well-being. So like even the sad songs we choose to listen to during those times, we think we're punishing ourselves, but it kind of offers us a way to access our emotions. So I want to know, does music play a big part in your life? And can you name a few of your favorite songs and why, why they've been profound at certain times? Um, there was a time when recorded music was more important than it is now. Right now, um, the music that really touches me is when it's when it's played by somebody who I love. Amazing. Um, okay, Charles Eisenstein, thank you so much for being here. I've loved every second. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you're doing for humanity. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And thank you also for taking responsibility for your well-being by listening to podcasts like this. It's something I really appreciate. And before you go, I just wanted to remind you to check out the Recondition Your Life Academy at laurenvacneencoaching.com. It's a 12-week course that I run three times a year for small tribes of like-minded women. If you love anything you're hearing here on the podcast, this course will serve you so deeply. Everything from inner child healing, divine feminine healing and health optimization to how to find your purpose and how to find or cultivate conscious relationships and so much more. Check out all the testimonials on the website from some very happy previous Academy members. The growth and healing available in this course really is unique. Just head over to the website and make sure to get your name on the waiting list for when we launch the next semester. Sending so much love your way.